If you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, reading verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always, for you always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, you can give to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand uh, for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, uh, we give thanks for your word. We pray that the truths in uh, in it will impact the way we live. That, Father, we would understand more clearly today what it is that you expect of your people. Father, that you would give us eyes to see our, our own hearts. You would give us ears to hear what, what is being said what your spirit is saying through your word. That, Father, our, our, our hearts would believe it and our lives would show it. We pray for your help now in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a pew Bible, I invite you to turn with me to page 850 if you're using a pew Bible. Uh, Mark chapter 14. 14, if you're using some other Bible. <laughs> I don't know the page numbers on your Bible, so we'll uh, just give you the reference. Yeah, Mark chapter 14. It has been said that if you were to show me your bank statements and your calendar, I can tell you what you value most. There's probably a lot of truth in that, isn't there? We, uh, we find a way, we will always find a way, it seems, to do what matters to us. Right? If it's important to us, we're, we're going to find a way to do it. We'll, we'll find the time, we'll find the money, uh, we, will, we will do whatever it is that, that matters. We, we will give ourselves, we will give our time, we'll give our money, we'll give our resources to whatever it is that, that matters to us, Right? Conversely, the things that, that, that don't matter to us, the things that's, that may, may be less important or of, of little importance, will be some of the first things that are, are overlooked. 
or some of the first things that, that are neglected or dismissed or even removed altogether. As we come back to Mark chapter 14, having spent a, a week uh, last week on the resurrection of Jesus, talking about that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we come back now to our study in the gospel of Mark. And here we pick up with Jesus in the middle of his final week on earth. In chapter 13, he had given to his uh, disciples what could be called a farewell prophecy concerning the end of the present age and when that would begin and how that was going to go. But, but after that now, Mark, Mark shifts his emphasis in the last chapters of the Gospels, and in, in all of the Gospels shift their, their attention in their, their final chapters as well, to Jesus' betrayal, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Uh, Mark's Gospel would no longer be uh, emphasizing or stressing Jesus' public teaching ministry. That, that would, that's closed now. At this point in Jesus' life, his public teaching, his public preaching is closed. And rather now, it is his priestly ministry that will be emphasized. And that is, namely, his work on the cross. Uh, Mark began this part of his gospel by stating the intentions of Jesus' opposition. Look at it again in verses 1 and 2. Now it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The religious leaders here in Mark, he, he, he says that they're the chief priests and the scribes. Some of the other gospels refer to them as, as elders uh, and chief priests. The, the point of what the writers are saying is that here were representatives of a, of a council called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a Jewish ruling council, uh, a, a religious council. Uh, the, these leaders had long been at odds with Jesus. We can track this all the way back to chapter 3 of Mark, Mark 3, 16. We see it again in chapter 11 and in chapter 12. They, they had long been at odds. They had long wanted Jesus to be stopped. Uh, they, 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 they didn't like what, what he was up to. And so they, they were trying to find a way, but they were, wanted to do this uh, by stealth, is what Mark says in verse 1, uh, by, by secrecy or uh, subtly so not to uh, be seen by, by the, the public. Uh, due to their fear of, of the crowds, uh, as, as we see here, uh, they intended to, to wait till after Passover and after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the reason for that is the population in Jerusalem increased greatly during the time of the Passover, so there were a lot of people around that would have caused a spectacle, they thought, and so they wanted to avoid that. Jesus' popularity was growing, uh, so they wanted to try to avoid an uproar from the people, as the end of verse 2 says. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as Mark refers to them here, were really the same festival. The Passover was, was the, the event where they remember the, the, what, what once happened. We'll get to that in a second. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread is what, what happened after the Passover in a time of, of eating only unleavened bread, thus aptly named the Feast of Unleavened, <laughs> unleavened Bread. Uh, one writer calls this time the Jewish Independence Day because it's this time, uh, this, this festival, this remembrance of what happened to the people of Israel. It's the remembrance of the Passover, of their deliverance from slavery while in Egypt, where by, by applying in faith 
the blood of the lamb upon their doorposts, the death angel passed over their home, and their firstborns were not killed. It is that event, this Passover, where quite literally the, the angel of the Lord passed over these homes. That's what's being remembered here. These religious leaders were plotting against Jesus. Like, just say that out loud again, right? Just hear that again. They were plotting against Jesus. And we, we hear a lot these days about being on the right side of history. These people were not on the right side of history, right? History would bear that they are the, the, the wrong side of history, in fact. But what's more, they were plotting against Jesus, right? Jesus, who is God, the, the, the Son of God, deity himself in the flesh, and they are plotting against him. They are seeking to undermine him. They're seeking to kill him. Listen to what Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 say. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. And then verse four, the psalmist says this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. For, for all the plotting that's being done here, God had a plan. Their, their plans would be overruled. Their plan was, was to wait until a later time in order to control this thing. But God had a different plan. It was for his glory in ways that they could not imagine, in ways that they could not even see. Well, having stated the intentions of the religious leaders, Mark inserts here an event an event um, about, with, with a woman and, and Jesus and an, an anointing here. And this is a past event. When we're reading it, we might think that he, he is talking about something that's happening uh, right then. Uh, but the understanding of this due to what John says in John chapter 12, verse 1, is that this event actually occurred before the triumphal entry. Actually, the Friday before the triumphal entry. So we are, you know, five or six days from this event, and Mark is bringing it up again now here. And the reason that he seems to include this event here is to contrast this woman and her response to Jesus with the leaders and, as we will see, Judas. The structure of the book of Mark could be, verses 1 through 11 here, could be referred to as a, what's called a sandwich structure. And we've seen this before in the Gospel of Mark, and there's actually another time here in chapter 14, we'll see it again, where the first part, verses 1 and 2, talk about a particular thing. He's talking about the opposition, the plan, the plot against Jesus. Then he moves to a, an event about this woman, and he comes back to this, this plot again. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's, it's a sandwich, right? That, that's how we can understand and see what, what he's doing. And what's in the middle has a reason for being in the middle. That's the point. The point is what's in the middle is linking the two pieces on, the, on, on, on either end. So we've talked about the plot. We've talked about this, this plan that the religious leaders have. And then Mark moves to a, a past event uh, regarding this woman. Look at verse Three. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now here we find that Jesus is not in, Beth, is not in Jerusalem, but he's in Bethany. 
Bethany is about two, two miles from Jerusalem. And we're told that he's in the house of a man named Simon, uh, who Mark refers to as Simon the leper. Now, there's a lot of Simons in the Bible. Uh, we don't know a lot about this particular Simon, other than apparently he was once a leper, and likely he had been healed by Jesus. Why was Jesus in Simon's house? There's a lot of conjecture to that. Was this a, a meal of appreciation for what Jesus had done? Is this where Jesus was staying when he was in Bethany? We, we don't know those things, but what we do know is that he was in this house and there was someone else in the house also. And we find out that Mark leaves her name anonymous. He just calls her a woman. Well, upon reading the other gospels, we can find that, that John actually gives her a name and her name is Mary. This is Mary from Bethany. Again, there's a few Marys in the Bible too. This is Mary from Bethany, the sister of Martha, right? the sister of Lazarus. This is, this is that, that Mary who could be confused with, with other Marys. Mary from Bethany is this woman. Could this have been Mary's house? Could, could uh, Simon have been Mary's father? We, we, we don't know uh, these things, um, but what we do know is what Mary did next. In verse 3 says that she took an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now this description of a, an ointment of pure nard was a, was a sweet-smelling perfume um, from a, a rare plant that was found in India. And we're told here that it was very costly. That's notable. Uh, intentionally uh, written in there that, that, that there's, there's a cost to this, which we'll get to in a minute. But Mary takes this flask and she breaks the flask. And by breaking the flask, she makes the flask unusable again. You're not, you're not recorking that thing, right? It's done. It's, it's used. After this sacred purpose, it won't be used again. And, and after breaking it, she pours it over his head. John, in John's gospel, in chapter 12 of his, uh, of his gospel, he, he writes this, and that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with a, the fragrance of the perfume. Now, some of us have heard that story before. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, that's what she did. Um, but, but the norms of the day were being violated here by Mary. This was, this was not normal behavior of what a woman would do to a man. This is not how men and women would have interacted. It, is, it would not, not have been a common occurrence. And yet, what we're finding is that Mary was not afraid to show her love for Jesus publicly. Right? She, wasn't, she wasn't concerned about the norms. She wasn't concerned about the other people's opinions, right? In, in, in this moment, Mary, um, uh, Mary may have imagined <clears throat> that this was a safe place to do that anyways, right? She's in, in a home with other people, with other followers of Jesus, and, and here she, she acts out in this uh, you know, great, great way, this uh, extreme example or picture of of worship, she thought maybe this would be a, a. She could have thought that this was a safe place from from judgment or from being criticized. However, unfortunately, self righteousness proves to be nothing new among the people who claim to follow Jesus. Look at verses four and five, and there were some who said to themselves indignantly, "Why was the ointment wasted like that? For the ointment could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor." And they scolded her. 
Now, now Mark refers to the, these, uh, these people as some. There were some who said to themselves indignantly. Matthew says that it was the, the disciples. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? John is even more specific in John chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, when he says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who, uh, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So who it was exactly, clearly it sounds like uh, from the Gospels that Judas was the one, maybe the spokesman for the group. Maybe they were all equally uh, indignant at her, but he was the one who was speaking, the one who was referring to this as, as waste. Word Wearsby writes, it's interesting that the word translated waste here in verse 4 is also translated perdition in John chapter 17 verse 12 and applied to Judas. In John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition or the son of destruction. Judas criticized Mary for wasting money, but he wasted his eternal life, end quote. Mark says that they were indignant. To be indignant, indignant means to be, to be angry or to, to express violent displeasure. Okay? So here's Mary anointing Jesus and the response is indignation. This word is used of angry horses snorting. I don't need an angry horse to snort at me to be concerned about that. But if, if the horse is snorting, you, you know they're expressing something, right? And so, so here, these disciples are showing, they're displaying this violent displeasure for Mary's extreme form or expression of worship. It doesn't suit them. This, 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 this doesn't work into their category for how she should be conducting herself. And so they scold her. Just a side note here. The things that we get angry about often reveal more about our own hearts than they do about the actual issue at hand. Maybe you can even have some enough self-reflection for ourselves. Again, not, 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 not painting other people into this, but, but your own self to say... When I've been angry, is that more about them or is it more about me? Right? And here, that may have been just the case. The truth is that the ointment was very costly. This perfume was costly. We, we learned that it was worth 300 denarii, more than 300 denarii. If it were to be sold, that's how much would have been collected. That, that amount um, would, it, would accumulate to, to nearly a year's worth of wages for a day laborer. So no small amount here. Now, the criticism was that that money could have, uh, from the sale, could have been taken and given to the poor. At, at, at Passover, gifts to the poor were, were customary. So this, this wasn't a, an unreasonable idea, yet clearly this was not what Judas would have done with the money. As we learn more about Judas and more about his, his uh, character, clearly that is not what his intentions were, though that's what he said. The criticism came from a heart of pride, of greed, and of self-righteousness. But if we could just pause it again, imagine Mary here for a second. Be, imagine being in Mary's position. Here, in this act of what she thinks is, is extreme love, in, in worship for Jesus, she does this, and then she gets criticized for it. 
She gets, she gets this indignation, this scolding from his own disciples. Danny Akins writes, while she worshipped, they expressed their anger and displeasure. And as you hear that described, like anybody can see the problem here, right? Anybody can see who is the problem here. And it's not Mary, right? The people who, who you would think would join in. Would, would agree with Mary, would participate in such, a, such an act, or here are the very ones who are criticizing them. Sadly, Mary is not the only follower of Jesus to be criticized by those who are self-righteous, those who deem extravagant acts of worship to Jesus inappropriate. One writer noted that there, there's often more criticism from the world and from within the church against those who practice a, a radical devotion more criticism for them than there is against those who practice a nominal, casual, measured, or moderate devotion. One that is comprised of comfort and convenience. One that doesn't make anyone feel too uncomfortable or awkward. May God help us if that were to be our response to an act of worship like this. We should also note here that the indignation of Mary didn't just demean Mary. They thought they were just scolding Mary. How dare you Mary? But who else is implicated here? Is the one who received the gifts. As if to say, Jesus isn't worth that, Mary. What are you doing? You're giving all that to Jesus? That could have went to the poor people. How dare you? Well, at this point, Jesus spoke up. And we find out what, what's, what's the verdict here, right? Is, is, it, is it a waste or is it worship? In verses 6 through 9, Jesus begins in verse 6. He says this, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Here, Jesus hears the, the disciples. He sees the, the situation and he comes to Mary's defense. He, he acquits her of this accusation that it was wasteful. He tells them to, to leave her alone or, or to, to, to get out to get out of here, right? To, to knock it off, to, to leave her be. Why do you trouble or why do you bother her? Basically, what, what is your problem here? What, what, what is the problem with, with what she is doing? Why would you even think that this is waste? He goes on then to identify the, the action as a beautiful thing, a, a pleasing goodness or a, a true moral beauty. Her anointing was not waste, it was worship. It was beautiful, it was a good thing. Mary was the one who was right. Mary was the one who was walking after the, the first command that Jesus had just talked about earlier in Mark's gospel, to love the Lord your God with your whole being. This is what Mary was doing. All, all of her is worshiping Jesus. She's putting him first. She's denying herself. She's following him. Well, Jesus went on to explain why it was beautiful, why giving so extravagantly to Jesus was, and we should say never is, wasteful. Verse 7, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. Jesus here confronted the alternative to, to Mary giving him the, this, the, um, the perfume. The alternative was to give it to the poor, right? The alternative was to say that the, the poor should get it. But Jesus says, actually, 
you're always going to have the poor. You're not always going to have me. His point was not to contrast the value of giving to the poor and the value of giving to Jesus. Right? That's not the contrast here. Because actually in Matthew chapter 25, we find out that those who care for the least are actually caring for Jesus. So Jesus can't be making a, a, a contradiction or a conflict between giving to the poor and giving to the Jesus. That's not the contrast. The contrast is between someone who is not going to be here very long and someone who is. That Jesus is going to leave, which he had been told, telling them for some time, yet they were not getting it. Jesus', Jesus point was to express the limited time that they had left with him. They would not have many opportunities left to give acts of worship to him. And here, Mary's taking the opportunity. Mary's doing it. Mary's doing what God would have wanted her to do, using what she had, which leads us to verse 8. She has done what she could. Jesus calls this act beautiful because of her full devotion to Jesus. She held nothing back. That which was of value, which was costly, she gave to Jesus without reservation and without hesitation. She willingly gave what she could not keep to the one she could never lose. There's a quote that sounds similar to that from Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred. He wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot gain to keep what he cannot, let me, write, let me say that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Mary gave what she could. She gave what she had with all her heart, sparing no expense and holding nothing back. Just a few weeks ago, Pastor Chris preached from the end of chapter 12 and talked about the widow who gave the, the two small coins, or sometimes we call the widow's mite. And we saw there her, her willingness to give, not out of her abundance, but out of her poverty. She gave what she had, and Jesus commended her for it. Here, Jesus is commending Mary for giving what she, does, what she had. Even in this case, it was quite costly. God is honored by this kind of giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says this, the Apostle Paul writing, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we see Mary here. We, we understand what Mary is doing. We should consider what does our devotion to Jesus cost? We say we love Jesus. What does it cost? It's not just monetary, but it is monetary. What does it, what does it require of it? To do, is there any inconvenience in our life for saying that we love Jesus, for giving him the worship that he deserves? Does our love for Jesus move us? Does it move us to give? Does it move us to give ourselves? Does it move us to give our time? Does it move us to give our, our resource and our ability and yes, our money? Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul again, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In a different translation, that says reasonable act of service, which is to say it is reasonable that because of the mercies of God that we give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, Give ourselves wholly to him. 
because of his mercies, we give ourselves to him. We are reminded also from the Apostle Paul that what we have received, what we have, we have received. The Apostle actually says it this way, what do you have that you have not received? Meaning everything, everything that we have, we've received. And so the, the response to that is, it's not ours. It's meant to be given. It's meant to be used for the glory of God. Jesus continues in verse 8, and he says, She anointed my body beforehand for burial. The third reason we could see that this was beautiful is because it was a prophetic statement about Jesus. Now, did Mary understand what was about to happen? We, we don't exactly know what Mary understood or what she didn't understand. Jesus had made, been making these statements about his coming death, about his burial and his resurrection. He had been talking about those things, but what Mary understood, we don't exactly know. But Jesus explains her actions as symbolic or prophetic as she anticipated what was coming, his death. In this way, in this way, we could say that the act was more beautiful than Mary even knew because it was picturing something else, this preparation for his death. Finally, in verse 9, Jesus says, Truly, or, or I tell you the truth, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The final reason that Jesus gives for why this is beautiful is because it's an act that will never be forgotten. And the fact that we're talking about it today is, is, is the point, right? It is confirmation of what Jesus is saying. That what Mary did was an example of the impact, the impact of Christ, the impact of the gospel on a life. We might ask ourselves, how are our lives an ongoing testimony of the love of Christ? Is there anything in our life that, that a generation later, someone might look back and, and see our love for Christ or Christ's love for us and how that moved us? Well, at this point, Mark moves back to the opposition of Jesus as Judas offers and plans to betray Jesus. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Again, Mark is inserting this act in verses 3 through 6, or 3 through 9, in order to contrast what's happening with Judas and the other, other opposition. Warren Wearsby writes, the ugliness of their sins makes the beauty of her sacrifice even more meaningful. And here we have Judas. Judas who was a disciple. Uh, Judas who had been walking with Jesus. Judas who had seen all the things. He saw all the things. He was part of the circle, and yet he is the one who betrays Jesus. One Bible commentary says, spiritual privilege is not enough. There must be the response of faith and love. See, G Judas was, was what we might say a follower in name only. <laughs> he acted the part. He, he went along with it. He, he did the things. He, he said the right words. And yet, he lacked the character, clearly. But even that, his lack of character, went unknown. It went undiscovered by those closest to him. That is until the end. 
J.C. Ryle says we ought to mark to what lengths a man may go in a false profession of religion. It's a dangerous thing. Here Mark expresses that, that Judas, Judas acted first. Notice that. The scribes, the, the chief priests didn't come to Judas. Judas went to them. Judas is the one who initiated this conversation. He is the one who went to them to hand over Jesus or to sell out Jesus. And Mark says that the religious leaders were glad. They were inwardly joyful. Because why? Because now they have someone on the inside. Now their plot can start to move forward. It actually can be expedited even more quickly than they thought. God had a plan. Even though they were crafting, God had a plan. They wanted it to happen after Passover. God had a plan. They wanted it to, to happen outside uh, of the scope of anyone noticing. God had a plan. God had a plan that Jesus, when Jesus would be crucified, and it wouldn't be when they wanted. Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, is our Passover lamb. Right? That's when he was going to be crucified on Passover. And that is when he was crucified. He even said it of himself in Matthew chapter 26, verse 2. He says this, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Regardless of what the religious leaders thought, they were, if they thought they were in control, they were not. God is sovereignly working. He's working even through evil men. And we, you can know that today too. That God's not sovereignly just working in the life of Jesus. He is sovereignly at work in your life too. You might say, well, there, there's been some pretty crummy things that have happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. Those things. Those things, God is sovereignly working through them. The bad things, the, 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 the adversity, the suffering. Sometimes we think the suffering isn't the plan. That's outside of God's plan somehow. What if suffering is the plan? What if Peter is right? That, 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 that the suffering is, we shouldn't be surprised by it. Or that all who, who seek to, to walk godly will suffer. It's part of the plan. Though we may wonder why Judas would do this. Why? Like, things seem to be fine. Jesus wasn't being mean to Judas. Judas seemed to be getting what he wanted. He was taking a little bit from the purse anyways. Why, why would he sell out Jesus? Well, there's several reasons that could be told. One is that, that Satan put it into his heart. In Luke chapter 22, verse 3, or in John chapter 13, verse 2, that Satan actually puts it into Judas's heart to do this. Additionally, we're told that, uh, we, we can learn that, that Judas is the only non-Galilean member of the disciples. And so when the call went out to, if anybody knows about this guy, to, to turn him in, in John chapter 11, verse 57, Judas may have taken them up on it. Another idea is that Judas wanted a political kingdom. Judas wanted Jesus to, to establish something on earth to rule, to take over the, the rule here and now. He wasn't getting that, and so he may have had enough. But the one that seems most obvious is Judas had a love of money. Judas was greedy. John chapter 12, verse 6, as he was scolding Mary, John adds this, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Matthew's gospel actually gives us a, a picture, a broader picture of the exchange of Judas and the chief priests. 
in verse 14 of Matthew 26, it says that one of the 12, whose name was Judas, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they said, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver might sound good to you. I don't know what, 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 what kind of value you might feel 30 pieces of silver is, but it actually wasn't that valuable. In fact, according to the Old Testament, 30 pieces of silver was the value of a slave accidentally gorged to death by an ox. That was the value that, 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 that a master would get for their slave. It wasn't a large sum of money. So why did he do it? Well, sin makes us stupid. And Judas may have well been caught in the love of money, which led to foolish and regrettable choices. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You've heard that verse before. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money. You can have money and it not control you. That's absolutely possible. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. For it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's not money, it's the love of money, but we ought to be on guard against such covetousness that God make us content. Judas looked for what he could get from Jesus while Mary looked for what she could give. And the contrast couldn't be greater, could it? Mary gave while Judas took. Mary blessed while Judas betrayed. Mary prepared Jesus' body for burial. and Judas prepared or plotted for his arrest. Mary served Jesus Judas sold out Jesus. Mary was motivated by love. Judas motivated by greed. Mary was selfless and Judas was selfish. Mary displayed love and faith while Judas displayed unbelief and hatred. Mary lived to worship. Judas lived to regret. Mary acted out of love for Christ while Judas acted out of love for money. Mary did a beautiful thing and Judas did a terrible thing. Mary was notable for her devotion. Judas was notorious for his betrayal. Mary of Bethany is an example to us in many ways. As we go through the Gospels, we can see her several times in the Gospels. And three times where we see her, she is at the feet of Jesus. That's where we find her. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? As Mary broke this flash, the, the fragrance, we're told, fills the room. Right? What she did was unmistakable. It was public. No, no one missed out on what Mary did. Everybody saw it. Everybody smelled it, right? Everybody knew what she had done. Her act of worship, her gift of love was seen by all. The Apostle Paul writes this, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. That, that, that our witness, our life, uh, our obedience to Christ is actually something that can be noticed. It, it's a fragrance. It can be smelled. It can be, uh, is, is unmistakable. May our lives be that kind of fragrance. Well, as Mary loved Jesus, she did so because Jesus loved her first. So too with us. In fact, that's exactly what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love God. Why? Because he first loved us. As Mary willingly gave everything, she did so because, why? Because Jesus gave all for her. And so too for us. 
2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. It's because of what Christ has done that we respond in these sort of ways. So I ask, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to give to Jesus? Now there's some here this morning, you may need to give up yourself. You may need to give up your self-salvation projects. Maybe you've been trying to do it on your own, trying to appease the wrath of God, trying to atone for your own sin. Maybe today you need to give yourself up to God in repentance and in faith. For others, there may be areas in your life where you have refused to let go. You, re- you have refused to submit yourself to God. What we refuse to give to God reveals what we really value, what we really worship, what we really love. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May God give us eyes to see what it is that that, that we have, that we ought to be giving that we're not. May God help us to, with open hands, be willing to give, give all, because of what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks this day for the work of Christ on our behalf. And in response to that work, in response to the cross, in response to to the, the nails, in the hands, the crown on the head. Father, in response to his love shown to us, your love shown to us through your son, may we be willing to give to you. May we not look for what we can get from Jesus or even for Jesus, but what we can give to Jesus. Would you give us eyes to to see and understand our own heart today, to know what we need to let go of, If we are giving, would you give us grace to continue to give extravagantly? It's not waste, it's worship. If it's done to Jesus, we pray that you'll receive the glory in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.